Greetings, and welcome to Ashram's podcast series. Today's speakers, Aaron Rowan Myers and Amy Aldrich, discuss the Medicare Secondary Payer Act and how the subsequent liens, set-asides, and payment reporting can be confusing. Hi, I'm Amy Aldrich, Vice President of Risk Management with the Risk Authority. And I'm Aaron Myers, Senior Claims Consultant with the Risk Authority. So Aaron, I'm really glad you were able to get together today. Uh, I know we hear a lot of buzzwords during our risk management and claims education. And one of the things I really wanted to discuss with you today was the Medicare Secondary Payer Act. I always see a lot of questions regarding the act, reporting, advantage plans, and I thought maybe we could pick your brain. So what is the Medicare Secondary Payer Act? That's actually a very complicated question, so I'll try and and narrow it down a little bit. But in 1980, Congress passed legislation that made Medicare the secondary payer to certain primary plans in an effort to shift costs from Medicare to the appropriate sources so that Medicare wasn't paying out claims and that they should not be paying. So primary payers are those that have the primary responsibility for paying a claim. So for example, if a patient goes into the hospital and and what we see a lot may fall and break their hip. And if they're treated for that broken hip, uh, Medicare doesn't feel that they should pay for that. That wasn't an underlying uh, condition that the patient was suffering when they went to the hospital. So that's something that Medicare will look to the hospital to be be the primary payer. So in other words, it's kind of like a car wreck. If someone is at fault for a car wreck, their insurance would pay that. So Medicare is looking at it like the hospital's at fault for the fall, so their insurance should pay for that piece, not them. Exactly, exactly. And actually, the the Medicare Secondary Payer Act has, there's three parts uh, that hospitals need to be aware of in terms of to be compliant with that act. And the first is reimbursing Medicare, and that falls under conditional payments and recovery, and that's just what we spoke about. Medicare having a lien that they paid for something that they did not feel they should pay for. Second is reporting to Medicare, and that's what we talk about as Section 111, mandatory reporting requirements. And again, that's done so that Medicare can identify those claims that they should not have paid for. And three is protecting Medicare, which is that goes into the Medicare set-asides for future care uh, in terms of where if a patient feels that they're going to have to continue to have care for something that Medicare should not have originally paid for, uh, Medicare wants to be protected. So that looks like a whole lot to talk about for just one podcast. So maybe we can focus on the one aspect today. Let's talk about reporting to Medicare. So exactly how is that done? Well, Section 111 of the Act did help make arrangements for uh, primary payers, as they put it, to report to Medicare electronically. Um, And the purpose of this is, again, to enable Medicare to understand what is out there that they should not have originally been paying for. And what what we talk about here is under either general group health plans, if they should be the primary payer, but for our intents and purposes, we're truly talking about non-group health plan, which is uh, liability insurance. If something happened um, at the hospital uh, in terms of a medical malpractice claim. So who is responsible for reporting all this? Uh, When you look at the act, it says, and I'll say, quote, close quote, applicable plan. And CMS defines an applicable plan as liability insurance, including self-insurance, as well as no-fault insurance and workers' compensation. But however, for purposes of our talking today, I think we want to focus on the liability insurance and self-insurance. 
so an organization must report under Section 111, and they are referred to as a responsible reporting entity. Um, so in general terms, a non-group health plan, RRE, we'll shorten it a little bit, um, are responsible for paying or reporting to Medicare. Okay. So we have a lot of things like service recovery that we write off and and we replace dentures and all of that. So when does a settlement or a payment need to be reported to CMS or Medicare? Well, this has changed throughout the years, but I think for in order to keep things simple for our talk today, um, at this point in time, any settlement, judgment, or award owed to Medicare with the value of over $750, which I'm sure... You cannot even get dentures for $750. Right, exactly, which I'm sure <laughs> I was just going to point out. I'm sure you're saying to yourself, when do we resolve a matter with a patient for under $750? Uh, but like I said, that's that's the number today. That number actually was originally at $100,000, so there wasn't a lot to report, and it slowly declined to 50,000 um, over the years from 2011 to 2012 and continued to decline. But as of today, and actually starting January 1 of 2017, it is that small amount of $750. Yes, exactly. Wow. Mm-hmm. So you really can't do minimal settlements to make a business decision for something to go away um, without reporting it for these Medicare clients. Exactly. So now, does this include things like hearing aid replacement, service recovery write-offs? What do these settlements that we're talking about include? Well, interestingly, given that at some point there will be some penalties for not reporting and those have not yet come into play and that the amount, the threshold is so low, I would always recommend reporting, you know, to be safe. But but when you look at uh, the Section 111 there is a user guideline if you go to CMS website to, to assist everyone in these some of these daily questions. But when you look to their user guide, uh, they do indicate that the RREs are not required to report liability insurance settlements, judgments, awards, or other payment for property damages only. So if they are not related to a medical benefit, then those type of things are not reportable. So, for instance, dentures, hearing aids are not part of a medical benefit, but DME, such as like a Unaboot, that could possibly be something you might have to report because it was part of a medical insurance claim and insurance may have paid on that. Yes, and I think it's also if it's if it's related to if that boot or some type of equipment was was damaged because the patient fell and broke their hip or, or and it was involved in that ho- overall like claim. Like insulin pumps, yes. Correct. Yes. I think that definitely should be reported. And again, you are not going to be penalized for reporting too much. I think Medicare even says, even if you have a resolution of a matter that's under $750, you're welcome to report it. Medicare is not going to say, don't tell me about it. But uh, so I think in the abundance of caution, Report it if you're not sure, because again, it's not going to have an impact on your facility because there's not going to be a lien um, for that care because you've paid for it. So I would I would definitely indicate that. And to talk a little bit more about that type of reporting where we talked about uh, if it if it's something that I think you asked me about write off. So if there is a write off, well, something to remember there is that a hospital can't just write off the patient's liability. They would have to write off Medicare's payment as well. So what really should be done, and I think a lot of the financial departments of our our hospital should understand this, is 
what they do is they would bill Medicare under services rendered but not billable. So that if a patient did did fall in and I'm not sure if they broke their hip or but they needed an x-ray, well bill Medicare for that x-ray under services rendered but not billable. Not only does that that shows that you have already reported it. That fulfills your reporting requirement. Okay. So, and then you don't necessarily have a lien in the future if it becomes a claim because Medicare never paid on it. So, it's a little bit easier to manage when you're looking at things retrospectively, too. Exactly. Yes. So, you indicated that really any settlement, judgment, or award with a Medicare beneficiary um, uh has to be reported and we all know litigation can take years and years so what if a patient at the time of the injury um, was not a Medicare beneficiary let's say they were 64 and over the course of this three or four year claim they turned 65 and became eligible for Medicare so what happens then that's a great question because I think a lot of times uh, when we look at this reporting we feel we're okay if it doesn't look like the patient is Medicare. I think some facilities might say, okay, let's just work with them and we don't have to worry about that. But again, as you said, these litigation takes a long time sometimes. Even working with, if you're working directly with that patient, it could take up to a year or Oh two yeah, years. early disclosure is not immediate. I mean, even if you're doing early resolution and, and appropriate settlement for claims, that's a long process. Exactly. So what Medicare is telling us to do is you look at the individual status at the time the obligation is created to pay that settlement, that award, or that judgment. So if at the time of settlement that person is a Medicare beneficiary, even if none of the care was billed to Medicare and was not related to Medicare, it still has to be reported to Medicare as a settlement. Okay. So anyone in an organization or I say anyone, certain people in an organization have the ability to provide write-offs or service recovery and other things that Medicare really defines as compensation. So should we be making our leaders aware of these rules and obligations? I, I think it would be very important for the leaders to be aware of that as well as having a point person that knows what write-offs are being done or as you said service recoveries uh, are being done just so that that individual has the ability to check if that patient is a, is a Medicare beneficiary and, and we keep saying patient and let me I guess I might need to clarify it's not only patients but it's also visitors it's any resolution with a Medicare beneficiary they may not necessarily have been a patient at your facility so if my sister's coming to visit me and trips over a huge crack in the sidewalk and breaks her hip and she's already on Medicare and we pay for the care of that broken hip, we still have to notify Medicare even if she wasn't a patient at the time of the injury. Exactly, exactly. Any settlement, award, or judgment or resolution with a Medicare beneficiary needs to be reported to them. So that's a whole lot to get your arms around. So what happens if you miss something and it's not reported in time? That's a good question. Right now, there are no repercussions for failing to report, but at some point, there will be some significant penalties. Now, um, I could really scare you by saying it. When it first came out, Section 111 said that any applicable plan that failed to report shall be subject to a civil monthly penalty of $1,000 for each day of noncompliance with respect to each claimant. Um, however, there were eyebrows were raised and there were many concerns 
posed to CMS. So again, a couple years later, in 2013, uh, the SMART Act uh, was signed into law by President Obama, and that actually modified the penalty provision by adding a discretionary element to the penalty provision provision in the amount. Basically, they struck that shall be language, which okay. we all know is a little scary sometimes. Shall means must. Exactly, yes. <laughs> exactly. And they put in there may be subject to civil penalties, but still up to $1,000 a day. So that can really add up if they look at your resolution or your settlement and say, you should have reported this 30 days ago times $1,000. That's a lot of thousand in the hole. That's right. Just for one patient. Exactly, exactly. But again, still, these penalties have not been uh, posed yet. And in fact, they're still working on them. And at, as late as December of last year, 2018, the Office of Management and Budget provided um, something out there that they were asking for uh, notice of proposed rulemaking. They put something out there to ask for. Um, recommendations and suggestions as to what should we do? How should we do this? What is the best way to do this? So I think they're still gathering those recommendations and suggestions. And I think we may see something um, in the very near future, actually maybe September of this year uh, that might outline the penalties. Wow. And that is fast approaching. Definitely. And and again, I know I'm going to sound like a broken record, but if you're not sure, I would report because again, it doesn't hurt to report. And we just don't know when these penalties are going to go into play in terms of, um, you know, being affecting our facilities. Right. And when they say may be subject to that gets it in the gray area. So how do you know what they're going to decide will be subject to and up to a thousand? Well, how do we know if we're going to have a hundred a day, five dollars a day, a thousand a day? That leaves us really open to the government's discretion. Exactly. And I think that was part of the issue they have with that shall be subject, because, again, as we well know in the healthcare industry, there is a lot going on and people are not sure what do we report this? Do we not? Did And the other question would be is we didn't know this person was a Medicare beneficiary, so we didn't even know we had to report it. This person was 35 years old. They definitely weren't Medicare. Well, they didn't realize they were end-stage renal disease and they've been on Medicare for two years. So I think what a lot of experts in the field are anticipating um, that will come is some safe harbors for these RREs and that if an RRE can show evidence of good faith effort to report or to report properly and to show good faith effort and that we tried to figure out if this person was a Medicare beneficiary and we cannot determine it, that's why we didn't report it, there's going to be there is going to be some leeway in that in that. And I can tell you from a risk management perspective, if you're going to prove that you've made good faith efforts, that's gonna include policies, procedures, how you do things so that you can go back and show the government, these are the steps we take to prove it. This is what we do 100% of the time for every patient that we have a claim with. I mean, do you agree? I agree, I agree. And actually, like we talked about a few minutes ago, having that one key point person either in your facility or if you're self-insured, but if you have liability insurance, that liability insurance to have a person or that is that point person for reporting for you. And that point person um, is able to determine Medicare beneficiary status. So you want to make sure that that's done on all settlements if possible before you you know, definitely decide whether to report or not to report. So what does the future hold? We've kind of given everybody a little bit of a scare about the reporting and we've said maybe some penalties coming up. But what do we think will eventually 
see. Was this going to migrate to Medicaid beneficiaries as well? I mean, I wouldn't be surprised because Section 111 is Section 111 of the Medicare, Medicaid, and S, you know, CHIP Extension Act of 2007. So again, these added mandatory requirements for Medicare. So it definitely wouldn't be unheard of at some point if the government foresees or believes that Medicaid is paying too much out there or that the CHIP programs are paying too much, that they're going to, once this they feel is a success, this Section 111 for Medicare, I would find it hard to believe that they wouldn't disseminate that to the other agencies as well. I agree. I agree. So Erin, if there is anything you would like our listeners for this podcast to take away from this conversation, what would it be? Well, Amy, in in healthcare, as you and I know, you in the risk management world and and myself in the claims world, that, that mantra in healthcare that we hear all the time, right, is that if you know, document, document, document. If it's not documented, it's not done. That that one we hate to hear. But for what I could say is in the CMS reporting world, I would have to say report, 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 and then find out, report. <laughs> uh, because again, there are no penalties for over-reporting. But I, want, I would love to point out too that there are many resources out there that fully explain this whole process. And on cms.gov, there are many um, non-group health plan user guides to assist those in navigating the Section 111 reporting requirements. Excellent. So that's cms.gov, and it's a non-group health plan user guides, which would be NGHP user guides that would really walk them through the step-by-step process for this and, and reporting online through and, that. Yes, exactly. There's actually probably more user guides they, than they, they need or want to read, but it's definitely a lot of very good information out there for everyone. Well, Erin, we really appreciate you uh, taking your time today and spending time with us to talk about this and, and picking your brain about this Secondary Payer Act and Section 111 reporting. And uh, hopefully we can do it again sometime. Sounds good. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Please visit ashram.org for more information and more educational offerings.